Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. They don't have very robust estrogen production during this time. It's declining. It may have spikes and spits and kind of last gasps of the ovaries doing their thing. But the reality is a 40-something woman is not overproducing estrogen. She's underproducing progesterone, which isn't there to blunt the estrogen that she's got. Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. We're over-medicated and underserved. At The Less Stressed Life, we're a community of health-savvy women exploring solutions outside of our traditional Western medicine toolbox and training to raise the bar and change our stories. Each week, our hope is that you leave our sessions inspired to learn, grow, and share these stories to raise the bar in your life and home. Okay, if you have food sensitivities, then this message is for you. I actually polled people on Instagram last month, and almost 80% of the people that saw my story said that they felt like they had food sensitivities. So that's a problem because once you dive into the intricacies of that, there is a lot of nuance. So to help with this and answer the question I get in many varieties each week, I am hosting a live training. That means that we can get together in real time and talk. And I would love that a live training and a Q&A session called What Should I Eat? Answering your questions about food reactions and inflammation. You can register for that at kristabigler.com forward slash food reactions. That link will be in the show notes. And I'm covering how you know if you're sensitive to food and what else is happening that has to be resolved to overcome food sensitivities. You don't just need to bounce from diet to diet to diet at all whatsoever. And where you should start for different inflammatory symptoms like skin issues and autoimmunity and histamine issues and hormone issues and gut issues and fatigue and pain and how to tell what you're sensitive to. Also, very importantly, I'm covering common mistakes that happen when you Google this topic or just in general, things that happen to even providers in their recommendations around food sensitivities that are honestly making things worse. So, and of course, your questions answered by me. I love to talk to you guys. I love talking to people. It's my favorite thing ever. So register for that webinar, kristabigler.com forward slash food reactions. It is live on January 25th, and there'll be a replay available for about a week after that. All right. See you there. Access to functional or specialized medicine testing and standard blood work is a big piece of personalizing care plans to help our clients succeed. But getting accounts with multiple labs and ordering and tracking results from many different web portals 
slows efficiency by bogging us down in admin work. This is why I'm completely obsessed with our podcast sponsor, Rupa Health. It's a single portal that allows you to order from over 20 specialty labs in one incredibly simple dashboard. I'm talking less than 30 seconds to set up your free account and about 30 seconds to order the labs you need. All the results are in one place and I can securely send clients their results with a click of a button. A big advantage for our clients is that standard blood work can be ordered for almost two thirds less than other direct to consumer lab sites. Rupa is a lab concierge, so they send the lab invoices on your behalf if a client pays for their own labs. They help them get set up with a lab draw, navigate testing questions, and they provide the requisition forms. It's literally a dream. Go sign up for free to help streamline your practice and simplify ordering labs for your clients at rupahealth.com. That's R-U-P-A health.com and let them know I sent you when you sign up. You can also check out the show notes for this episode for a short video walkthrough of how I use Rupa Health in my own practice. All right. Today on The Lustrous Life, we have two lovely ladies, Maria Klaps, who's an FDN practitioner, and Kristen Johnson, a board-certified nutritionist. They are, I love this, plain-spoken friends and practitioners who share a passion for women's health, especially women's health at midlife. As both are themselves menopausal, they've refined the art and science of thriving as a midlife woman based on both clinical and personal experience. They combine individualized nutrition and lifestyle changes tailored to midlife women's needs with mindset coaching, lab testing, and hormone replacement therapy education to help women thrive so they can stop or prevent their health from spinning out of control. Welcome, ladies, both of you. Thank you. Well, you don't look like you're in menopause. I feel like (laughs) people just look younger and younger to me as I continue to also age. I'm like, we're all just so young. Well, I'm going to be a grandmother next month if that tells you anything. So I could I could be a grandmother in a couple of years. I have a 16 year old. I could be a grandma. I mean, I'm not going to. <laughs> I know her well enough. enough to be like, that's probably not going to happen. But, uh, but sometimes I struggle with the concepts of that. I'm like, I'm like a child inside. So anyway, that's what they say. Like you never really grow out of being. <laughs> you always feel like you're 21 in your brain. Yes. Um, all right. So we're going to chat about a topic that is sort of like a gray area, right? You know, we covered a few times in the podcast today as a, a new different version. And we're going to talk about a little bit about perimenopause and what's kind of happening in that transition. But first, before we get into that, your personal story is at play here, right? And that's kind of how you decided, let's help these women. I'd like to hear about how the duo of yourselves and, you know, you kind of, you're online, your presence is called Wise and Well just lovely. Feels good. Um, so how did you two kind of get together? Will you tell us, you know, collectively your stories and kind of where you were versus like, you know, where you were, why are we here now? Essentially. Sure. I was 43 and I was uh, feeling the effects of perimenopause and it wasn't good and I didn't like it. So I sought out a doctor in New York city and it wasn't a great experience. He wanted to put me on lots of hormones, which you probably know, Krista, we are not categorically against, not by any means, but remember, I was 43. My body was changing and I wasn't given any support or education and just like hormones and supplements and ridiculous amount of testing. So I just left there and I was like, I need a new career. I'm so inspired. And that's when I went back to school and sought out mentorship and said, there has to be a different way. And, you know, I was menopausal by the age of 47. So the doc at 43, menopausal by 47 and saw what a change it was and realized that, you know, I loved learning about this myself and applying what I was learning to myself that I was like, I have to help other women as well. Did you at first go on things from this provider that you saw and also realize I, I did not like this? 
I did. And I am the classic example of, I will say maybe the hormone therapy that he gave me would have been helpful for me. And I just also said that I went into menopause at 47. And I know this is not an HRT discussion. Knowing what I now know, I probably would have started HRT at say 46 or 45. There's no way to really know. (laughs) You know, at 47, that's what I needed. I was pretty ignorant back then of it. So I did actually go on the hormones at 43, but I had no education. Why am I taking these? How long do I have to take these? What am I looking for? How are you tracking me? I was given nothing. So I did what most women do at whatever age, whether it's 47, 50, 53, is they'll start something and they don't know how to manage expectations and they don't understand why they're doing it and they go off. So yes, I started, but I went off. Mm. That was a perfect example of things I see. And it is a challenge, right? Because there's not good, there's not like straight up. I don't feel like there's good straight up guidelines around that. There probably is not. So it feels like the wild west. How about you, Kristen? Yeah. So I was, I think I'm like the flip side of the coin that Maria was. I was also in my early forties, definitely suffering from the effects of declining hormones in perimenopause. I was outside of Boston. I went to my very conventional medicine doctor and she actually refused to test me. She said to me, you're too young. This isn't a problem. You don't have hormonal issues and, you know, tried to kind of say, just suck it up and figure it out on your own. I went back to her so often. I mean, I was begging for a diagnosis. Is it Lyme disease? Do I have autoimmune? You know, like what is wrong with me? I knew something was off. Nobody bothered to look at food. Nobody talked to me about my athletic pursuits, which were significant. I was a highly competitive rower. So I was two a day workouts, five days a week up at 4.30 in the morning, throttling my adrenals and having no clue what the fallout was going to be. But eventually I was told just stick with the Mirena. It's going to get you through menopause. And if you have a Mirena in, you won't have any issues with hormones if this happens to be hormones and just leave it in there till 55 and we'll talk about it then. That was not an acceptable answer for me. And I just kind of kept digging and digging and digging. And when I finally had the ability to test my hormones on my own, I was postmenopausal with all of my hormones and I was mad and, you know, took the Mirena out, checked everything again. Sure enough, you know, the ship had sailed and, you know, I had a lot of sort of rehabilitation of my hormone health to undergo after having been exposed to the synthetics for so long. So that was, you know, kind of what started me on my path. And then I think Marie and I came together and compared stories and realized that between the two of us, we sort of represent every woman's experience and it's totally unacceptable. So I also feel so confused on why the Morena was supposed to be the solution for you as someone with declining hormones when a hormonal IUD is ultimately suppressing the communication. Of like it just doesn't make any sense at all. Right. Right. So, but, you know, they're not worried about sense. They're worried about stopping me from coming in repeatedly and begging to find something wrong with me. I guess. Yeah. That was disappointing. Both of those. So something that we didn't talk about in your stories were talk to us about the symptoms that you were experiencing your body changes. What were some of those things that you were both experiencing as a result of declining hormones as you transitioned? For me, the biggest was mood and, and sleep was definitely a problem. And I started to put on some weight. Yeah. For me, it was definitely the sleep disruption was huge. I literally started to almost develop anxiety about going to bed because I knew I was going to lie there awake 
And that even if I fell asleep, I'd eventually wake up way too early and really not be able to recover. And, you know, during that phase of your early 40s, I was a mom with three active kids. I did not have time to have downtime, you know, and to not be performing at my best. So it started to kind of spiral and it definitely affected relationship. I also had a lot of cognition problems. The brain fog was second to none. And I used to joke about it that I could only get through the day with five lists, you know, and I needed lists for my list sort of thing. But it does make you start to question sort of what's happening to you. You know, am I losing myself sort of thing? I'm just not able to function. So the sleep and then definitely the weight. And I saw it shift and I took the punitive approach of workout harder and eat less and it should resolve. And as we know, that's not the way. Yeah, some a little rough on the adrenals, which are now taking the brunt of the hormone production. Yeah. Let's talk about what's happening behind the scenes a little bit with that menopausal transition. Like, why are you starting to see these symptoms? Because that is a big part of what you guys do with education, right? And also with that, what's that time frame? Because if someone's listening to this, sometimes people in their late 30s will say, I'm not sure if I'm starting to experience perimenopause or not is really the qualifying piece there. And so I know it's quite a span. So let's talk about the time frame of essentially menopausal transition or perimenopause. And then what starts to happen physiologically that creates the symptoms that you were both feeling? It is quite a span, but I think that perimenopause sets in early 40s. And that's not just because it happened to me. We speak to so many women who are 42, 43, and there something is going on and they don't understand it. So it could start late 30s. And, you know, it's possible that it starts late 40s, but I would say early 40s would be the most common. And the symptoms, oh, those run the gamut as well. The most kind of symptom that gets most women's attention, though, is their periods changes. If they were like a 28 day cycle person, all of, all of a sudden, they're regularly like 26 days or 25 days. So it can shorten and then it can lengthen. And so now you've got like, say, a 45-year-old woman who doesn't have a 28-day cycle. She's got like a 38 or a 40-day cycle. And what does she think, Krista? She thinks, oh my goodness, am I pregnant? Very often, no, she's not, although it can still happen. It's anovulation. She's not ovulating and she's skipping. Do you see women getting misdiagnosed at this stage? All the time. <laughs> because if you start to see, you know, a shortened cycle and then a long cycle or basically skipping ovulation, I start to wonder, you know, whereas PCOS, it has diagnostic criteria, you need two or three symptoms, it takes a long time to diagnose. I have been seeing more and more people that seem to be getting a diagnosis earlier, and maybe it's not even a correct diagnosis. I'm curious if you're seeing that diagnosis, <laughs> you know, sometimes at that age incorrectly or correctly, maybe. But you know, when I see these cycle changes, also, this really sucks when you're like, listen to your cycle. Okay, except for when this is going on sort of right, because it's jumping all over the place. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't know, is we see as much PCOS, we see are too many women being told, oh, this is estrogen dominance, as if they're overproducing estrogen. And the reality is, they don't have very robust estrogen production during this time. It's declining. It may have spikes and spits and, you know, the kind of last gasps of the ovaries doing their thing. But the reality is a 40 something woman is not overproducing estrogen. She's underproducing progesterone, which isn't there to blunt the estrogen that she's got, but both of them are low and going lower. And so what makes us really go nuts is we see people who are put on things like DIM to essentially get rid of their estrogen excess and 
the effect is it's emptying the tank. It's actually ushering in the exacerbation of the symptoms that they had. And they're really frustrated and miserable and think something's wrong with them. But, you know, it's women aren't being educated as to what the cycle is doing during this phase of life and how they can be trying to support it and sort of give the ovaries their best options during perimenopause. And instead, the standard treatment is that which you give maybe a 25-year-old woman and it's sort of shutting things down. So it makes it worse for most 40-somethings. So the moral of the story is don't treat a 45-year-old woman like a 25-year-old woman. Yeah. In practice. You know what I see sometimes is a provider putting someone on hormone replacement for estrogen and then putting them on DIM. I find that very intriguing. Hmm. Why do you find that intriguing? I don't know. I just find it odd that you would put someone on a hormone replacement therapy and then support elimination, like then try to get rid of it at the same time. It just feels kind of interesting. Yeah, that's pretty high level thinking on your part. So I kind of hats off to you with regards to that. So what happens is, particularly if a woman is on a fairly low dose regimen and the patch is going to be low dose and a bias cream is going to be low dose and she's put on DIM, you're basically paying to get rid of the hormone therapy that you just paid for. So, and DIM is really only necessary if a woman has enough estrogen in the tank and she's got poor estrogen metabolism. At the top, right? I mean, there's like, that's a whole nother discussion about proper estrogen metabolism, which we won't go into right now, right? But when you Google this, you think DIM is the answer, (laughs) right? And so I'm always like, I would rather if you didn't Google this, because you're going to get that the answer is DIM. And that may not be a very good fit for a lot of people. There's a lot of pieces where this could go wrong. So you said, women don't understand what the cycle is doing during this time and how to support it. So maybe let's start there. What is the cycle doing during this time? What's going on hormonally as we shift down, actually help people understand (laughs) why they're having sleep disruption and brain fog (laughs) and weight gain. (laughs) We have a great, a great graph on this that we share with our clients is, you know, essentially you've got what your hormones should have been doing in their twenties and thirties. And let's be honest, there's a lot of women who head into the forties with metabolic dysfunction that has impaired their hormonal function. So it's not as though women are coming in from an optimal state to begin with. And that can really define the extent to which they experience perimenopause. But assuming that a woman, you know, is having the rhythmic ebbs and flows of estrogen and progesterone over a 20 day, eight day cycle, what happens is that the ovaries start to, you know, reach their cellular end point and your progesterone starts to decline. It doesn't come back. This progesterone isn't going up and down. It's just going straight down and the estrogen starts to decline with it, but also then fluctuate. And, Women are starting to, that's where the sleep piece comes in. You know, lack of progesterone is impacting their sleep. See a lot of increase in anxiety because they don't have the metabolites to help GABA get into the brain from this declining progesterone. And they don't have enough progesterone to blunt that estrogen, which goes back to the whole issues of the feelings of being too too high of estrogen. And if you look at the charts, which anyone Googling has done this, they look and they see the exact same symptoms for low estrogen as high estrogen. So it's no you know, uh, surprise that people get confused during this time. But essentially, your ovaries are just starting to reach the end of their useful life. We don't need fertility any longer, right? Hopefully, in our late 40s, we're not having children. And if you are, that's perfectly fine. But you better be supporting your body and your hormones appropriately because they're just not going to be producing the hormones in the amounts that they need. But the problem is, is we didn't used to live much longer than this ovarian shelf life. And so there are other parts of the body 
all throughout, one of our mentors likes to say, you know, estrogen is kind of the homeostatic regulator for the body. And so as these two hormones are declining, other parts of our bodily functions are starting to miss out on the very things that they need. And it's whether it's cardiovascular health, your brain, your cognition, your mood, your stomach or your gut, I should say, your microbiome is changing, your ability to tolerate carbohydrates is changing, your bone remodeling is changing because all of these bodily functions took their cues from those hormones that are on the decline. So that's why we say it can be a very varied experience for women as to what they're going to feel because everyone's body, you know, is going to respond differently to those hormonal deficiencies. So a couple of questions ago, we said, don't treat a 25 year old woman like a 45 year old woman, (laughs) but in some cases, if they both have low progesterone, because other reasons a younger woman can have lower progesterone is under eating. And you see these things happen in a 40 or five-year-old woman as well, probably in your story, right? Maybe, maybe not, right? Yeah, definitely. You're very aggressively rowing, working out twice a day. And we're not really equipped to understand. And society has not helped anything, you know, that we need to fuel a ton, right? And especially if you're gaining weight, it gets really confusing, right? (laughs) It gets really confusing. I had this conversation with someone earlier today. Low progesterone is probably, if it's not already very abundantly clear, it's probably like our next pandemic because of like stress suppressing progesterone, lack of intake, lack of nutrients, et cetera. You know, and in a similar way, we talk about, you know, we get estrogen dominance or estrogen excess may be at play, but if you can't support, like if your body doesn't have enough to make progesterone. So as the 25 year old, it's just that at 45, the key difference is that you don't need this. So we're going to downplay it a little bit, but it's a challenge because if it's going down too quickly, we're having these pretty serious symptoms. And I also like wonder if I back up, you know, I'm like, it doesn't need to be that way, right? We don't need to have significant symptoms when we enter perimenopause. And the first thing you said, essentially what I wrote down was that if we enter perimenopause in a lower inflammatory state, it's not going to be such a swing. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, this is why we talk to women all the time that the health foundations matter. You know, even if you're a fan of HRT and you want to restore your hormones as they start to decline, you can't put hormones in a broken body. You've got to get the sleep on point. You've got to figure out your exercise and movement specifically for what your body's needs are now. You've got to get rid of the inflammation, which usually means you've got to address the insulin resistance that you're probably flirting with. So yeah, I mean, it's a multifactorial puzzle and it's not just the one piece. It's not just the hormones. It's got to look at all the other kind of metabolic decline that we tend to bring into our forties with us. It's just the baggage of life, right? But it doesn't mean that it has to be that way. So you go and twist the levers and do the things that you can do to dial those things in. You can drastically improve the way you experience perimenopause. I always say that adrenal health doesn't go out of style. Um, so basically if you're super stressed out when you're walking into perimenopause, just to reiterate what's going on here, right? We're down the the ovaries are like, I don't need this. So now the adrenals are going to take the brunt of it. So if you're working out twice a day and your adrenals aren't really supported and you're running around after three kids and Maria, sorry, I'm not talking to your story as much as I should be, but uh, she had four kids. So she was right there with us. She's right there with you. You know, I don't know. It's kind of unsexy to talk about. It's like, oh yeah, stress, but also whatever. Right. Um, you know, I think that brings me to like, when we talk about hormones, we're talking about, there's really multiple categories There's sex hormones or stress hormones. I guess I want to ask you what you guys hear from people that they are saying, I think it's my hormones, but maybe it's not their hormones because you guys hear a lot 
right? You know, and online. So like, what are some things people say that you're like, well, maybe that's not what this is, or maybe it's presenting a different way. I don't know if that question makes sense. I think a lot of times women want to blame their hormones as something that you know, is bad or wrong. We see a lot about, you know, needing to kind of flush estrogen out of the body. So it's really not hormones, right? It's, you know, what you're eating, how you're sleeping, how those hormones are actually behaving in the body. So it could be the stress, it could be the diet that is leading to insulin resistance that's causing like a woman to convert her estrogen into testosterone. So that's so it's not the hormones per se, it's what you're doing to the environment that those hormones exist in. Well, I was gonna say too, you know, women, I think they think sometimes, I think we all think that, you know, we eat clean and we live clean, but the reality is it's not just the hormones, we have receptors too, right? And what have we done to our receptor health over our lifetime matters significantly. Our gut health matters significantly. And, you know, or women, if it's not sex hormones, we'll blame cortisol. Like, oh, I just need to get rid of this cortisol. And we're like, no, actually, you get rid of that cortisol, you die. You know, so the cortisol is not the problem. The estrogen is not the problem. It's how your body's sort of ability to regulate and balance these things. That's the problem. And you have to start to look in the mirror and ask, what am I doing? What am I exposing myself to? What am I engaging with that's disrupting that? Because the hormones themselves aren't just the problem. Right. They're not the root cause, they're the side effect of the of the, or like the downstream effect. You know, the thing I hear most often that people are frustrated with is besides sleep and besides brain fog is that hormonal weight gain. You've talked a little bit about insulin resistance. So I want to talk about causes of hormonal weight gain a little bit more deeply because, you know, this does kind of sneak up on you maybe sort of, right. But people will also say, I felt like when I turned this age, this happened, right. So did their diet really change at that time? Maybe not, like maybe it was pretty similar for a while. So is it just insulin resistance? What are the other pieces around weight gain with perimenopause and menopause that just drive women crazy? Like help us understand what the triggers are and what's perpetuating it. Well, I'll start with this and then I'll let Kristen finish. And that is we truly believe that you're going to gain some weight and you're never going to get rid of that weight unless you have extreme devotion to every morsel that you eat, your exercise, your sleep, your stress. But honestly, even with all that, we do think most women gain weight and that it's just is a normal part of aging. Because you see what happens, Krista, is when we go down in estrogen, the fat that we tend to carry, and we do carry more fat as women, the fat we tend to carry around our hips that gives us perhaps a little bit of an hourglass figure tends to migrate up to the belly area, the waist. And that is actually a function of low estrogen, right? So it's not the hormones causing the weight gain. It's actually the hormones going away, causing that shift to belly fat. So we do think that a certain degree of that is unavoidable. And that's part of the mindset work that we do with women. And that is you're changing. You're not going to look like the same person you were when you were 30. There are functional declines of aging. And we don't think like anyone is talking about this. You know, we all think we want to be like, you know, 35 year old, you know, Instagrammer or 40 years old, even 40 to 50 is just an absolutely huge change. So having said that though, we don't want our metabolic health to decline as our body is changing. So yes, you're going to be a little bit more fluffy, a little bit more padded. 
I've spoken to women who say they want to get five. I just need to get these five pounds off. I'm just five pounds heavier than I used to be. Some are way more like 30. That's definitely a problem. 20, that's a problem. But I just give them a little bit of reality and say, I don't think those five pounds are ever coming off. And it might even be protective at a certain point for you. So I'll let Kristen kind of continue with the metabolic health piece. Yeah. I mean, I think there is definitely a reality that the feels like the goalposts are being moved on you. A lot of these women do come in and say, I was doing all the same things and now everything has changed. And, you know, that is more a reflection of the changing hormones in your body's sort of ability to handle the former lifestyle foundations in a new hormonal template. The other thing that you start to see and women don't realize it is we do start losing our muscle. So we, our body composition changes and women will get maybe a little bit more flat chested and, you know, they'll feel as though they're leaner, but really their body composition has shifted. And what we try and tell women is that, you know, getting that back is going to require two things, restoring your hormones and changing the way you move. And possibly changing the way you eat. Any woman that comes to us and says, I eat super clean. I eat everything clean. Marie and I just sit and smile because it's agnostic to macronutrient distribution. And that starts to matter significantly in hormonal changes. So, you know, your body's changing. You're going to have to make some changes. And those changes are going to have to be with how you distribute your foods. If you're already dialed into good foods, how you change your approach to movement, because with that body composition shifting, it might feel like you look better in this leaner physique, but you're likely less healthy because your muscle is starting to decline. You are losing the support for your bones. You're losing the protection that you need if you were to get sick. So you're going to have to start to try and put muscle back on. That's going to require you to eat. It's going to require you to use HRT. And the fun fact is, is one of the things that restoring estrogen does to the female body is it sort of rejuvenates our tissues. It brings fluid back into areas that were sort of dried out and looking leaner. And what happens is you end up with a little bit more fluff. Marie and I refer to it as sort of a five to 10 pound benchmark. Women, you're just going to have to drop that goal. It's not a bad thing. It's actually better for your health if you let the body sort of reform itself. Your breasts might get a little larger on HRT than they had been for the 10, 12 years prior that you didn't realize you were heading into perimenopause. The belly fat, you can try and control it to a certain degree. But like Maria said, the estrogen goes down first and the insulin moves the fat up from the hips to the waist. Not going to change all that much, but that doesn't mean that you have to be like, okay, I'm just going to be fat and happy in my fifties right? That's not, it's not a hall pass to completely throw everything out the window. So we're still going to hammer on metabolic health, but I think the ideal that we carry around needs to be reframed a little bit in midlife and beyond. I thought you were going to talk about dry vaginas there for a second. Kristen, because you <laughs> We said, can go you know, there. We love you know, to go there. <laughs> you know, just plumping up that area that was previously dried out. It might oh, look like too. a little bit. Yeah, that's a rejuvenated area as well. Rejuvenated area. And you answered my question. You were like, there's only a couple ways to do this. You got to restore hormones. And I was like, hey, how are you going to restore hormones in perimenopause? So you're talking about hormone replacement therapy. Yeah. So hormone replacement therapy is sort of like this interesting elephant that's like, my friend got this, you know, there's a like, sometimes young women are going up, but we're talking about it. Let's just keep it in the context of the current ladies. The reality is your hormones are going to decline. They're not coming back. Hormone replacement therapy is an option technically, right? And a lot of people 
find relief from that. Talk to us about why it's not well understood and how does a person start to understand if it's something that they want to explore? Well, it's poorly understood because of the 2002 headlines that you know you could hear women dropping their hormone therapy prescription into their garbage pail around the world. And that's because in 2002, a very large-scale study was abruptly stopped because the headlines were, estrogen gives women breast cancer. And so it's definitely a little bit beyond the scope to really get into that, but that was called the Women's Health Initiative. And that was, you know, used women that were not newly menopausal, but were in their, many of them were in their sixties. Many of them were smokers and the estrogen that they studied was diabetic. Okay, right. The estrogen that they used was Premarin, which is an oral estrogen that's synthetic and it's derived from horse urine. So what happens when you put oral estrogen into a woman who's smoking, who's, you know, 60 something years old, the results are not good. So her metabolism wasn't good to start with, right? Her metabolism wasn't good to start with. Like I said, some of the markers, yeah, or just her health wasn't good to start with. I'm just talking out loud here and thinking out loud because I'm still confused on why people go on hormone replacement therapy, estrogen, and then go on dim. I wonder if it came from this ever. Because when I think about estrogen and cancer, I'm thinking about there's a pathway for this, right? Technically. And even when you're in perimenopause or menopause, you can do testing. And still, if you have a strong family history of cervical or breast cancer, I think it's intelligent to assess whether your estrogen is going down the wrong pathway. And so I wonder, I'm just talking out loud, maybe it's rhetorical. I wonder if people came up with those recommendations because they're like, oh, it's going to help it not go down that pathway, which is not how I understand it or see it specifically as a soul thing. But anyway, just talking out loud. I hope that made sense because I can understand. I didn't know that about these headlines from 2002. I didn't care about this very much in 2002, but this is how we are. Like we get a bad headline and we hold on to it for like a whole generation, 20 years. Right. And it's really hard to like rewrite history. 2002, I mean, it lasted, you know, it kept getting regurgitated. So it was probably 03, 04, you know, before some of the brouhaha died down. That's only 17 years ago. And as we know, research takes about 17 years to be incorporated in a medical school curriculum. So we have old school doctors and recently minted doctors who are still preaching these horrible things about HRT because it was what they were taught. And, you know, even the studies authors have come out and disavowed the study, recognizing that it was poorly designed. They didn't do pre-screening. They didn't choose the right candidates. They didn't test the proper hormones and that the conclusions were drawn inappropriately. And yet we keep seeing this sort of stigma attached to HRT. The other thing is that we have providers like the ones you describe who are giving estrogen and giving DIM. And Maria and I like to kind of characterize those providers as HRT shy. They still aren't comfortable with it, but they want to maybe deal with the symptoms that brought their patient in complaining. They may feel, you know, gosh, I understand these hot flashes that make you nearly have to undress in public because you're dripping in sweat are horrifying. We're going to give you this HRT, but we're not quite sure we're comfortable with HRT yet. So we're also going to detox it aggressively at the same time. And we see that even with providers who are just willing to do like mini doses of the patch. 
And one of our mentors likes to say, that's just placebo estrogen. <laughs> like there's nothing actually benefiting the woman there. And, you know, I think what's missing too from a lot of this dialogue is why would a woman choose HRT? And too many physicians see it as a symptom answer. And that piece of it is wrong. And it's relevant, but it's really not the main issue with HRT or the main objective with HRT, if we were being honest. Well, you can't end it there. So um, (laughs) you said, I wrote down, I type as you talk, and you can understand, like a woman comes in and these symptoms are atrocious and they're like ruining my life. And so it's like, okay, I want to help give you an answer to it. But there's some potential situations. One, like you said, someone's not comfortable providing this therapy, but doesn't know who to refer them to. I feel like that's what I see. Like, I don't know where to send you for this because sometimes when we send people to certain people, I'm like, I'm not really sure why they're doing XYZ thing when this is like very high. So backing up to education around it, we just talked about why it's not well understood. And to bug on to that end, would you say that what happened in 2003 and the years that followed, did it really put a negative mark on research dollars? So is there like, no one ever, the answer is always like never enough research. Um, But would you say that there's just like a huge lack of research around hormone replacement therapy yet to this day? Or do you think there is some coming? I think there's a lot of research. It's just research on only like very specific types of preparations that are, I will say, minimally helpful at best. So I think there is a good amount of research, but you know, I, I agree. There's, there could always be more. Well, and I think too, that a lot of the research that's out there, unfortunately, you know, there isn't a great database to draw from beyond the WHI. So we're still using some of the data from that to extrapolate into meaningful and important questions, but we still have bad data. And, you know, they're trying to do better. We need to be really honest that there's a profit issue with the research that's being done. The kind of gold standard for the most healthy hormone treatment for women is bioidentical hormones. And compounded creams or just even compounded formulations tend to be the best of the best sort of thing. And the reality is we can't patent those. And the FDA doesn't like compounding pharmacies. So we're just not seeing a lot of research in the areas that would really benefit women because there's not a huge profit potential in the outcome of that research. That's good for you to say, because that's kind of what a lot of things boil down to. And also, I think what you just said helps us understand, like, it's not like you do this and then you do this and then you do this. I feel like people are doing all kinds of different things, right? Is that the case? Mm -hmm. All right. So I want to make sure we serve the woman who is, like you said, why would a woman choose HRT? Can we start to address that or at least send them on the right path to trying to determine that? Because that's where a lot of people are. They're trying to determine, do I want to be on this? Do I not want to be on this? Do I want to go on something that I kind of don't want to be on forever? Like you said, there's a lot of nuance here, but maybe I think a person's probably going to be listening to this episode first because they're in pain on their perimenopause symptoms. So how do they discern if something like that is the right choice for them? They need to determine, do they just want to get rid of symptoms or do they want to improve their whole entire health from their bones to their eyes, to their colon, to their vaginal health, to their cognition? You know, they need to determine what it is they want to do. Is it just get rid of symptoms or is it improve my health for the rest of my life? But the problem is, Chris, most women don't think like that because even your average menopausal woman at 51 
does not understand what's coming down the pike for her at 65. Yeah. And that's lipid changes, massive lip changes, maybe well before 65. That's changes in their vasculature, endothelial health. I would guess that probably 95% of women do not understand what's coming down the pike without estrogen. So, you know, they're 51, they're having hot flashes or issue, you know, things like that. The dry vagina. Yeah, dry vagina. Then, you know, they're going to want the estrogen, but are they going to be really supported and educated and understand and know what type they should be getting and how long they should be on it? Should they go off? I mean, we don't think women should, but this is the type of things that we counsel them on. Yeah. I mean, I think what women don't understand is that particularly the ones who don't have the symptoms, right? We've all heard women say, I never had a hot flash and I went into menopause. Great. What is totally lacking from that comprehension there is what's happening that you don't feel. And, you know, you can't just look in the mirror or look at the scale or look at how your clothes fit and say, I'm good. That is not what health looks like. And as women age, the reality is that declining hormones are creating silent processes in the background that once they make themselves known, it is too late to deal with them. And that's the part that we want women to understand is that, you know, you can say, I don't want to deal with HRT or it's not a commitment I want to make right now. That's totally fine. But understand that the bargain you are choosing is going to be a life of statins and anti-anxiety meds and possibly sleep assistance and, you know, all sorts of other things. I think the average 65-year-old in America takes 14 pills a day. You know, many of the ills that those pills are addressing are things that hormone restoration in a female body can improve and can address. Because what we're doing is... And we hear women who come in and they'll say, I just want to have the ancestral approach to menopause. And we giggle and say, great, that's death. So, (laughs) you know, plan your funeral because we didn't live this long. So the reality is, is yes, your fertility may be gone, but your body's physiology still needs those hormones. So if you want to normalize your physiology and optimize your body function for good, healthy aging symptoms or not that's the decision you need to make. Well, this had gotten dark for a second and then it kind of got, <laughs> and then it brightened up. I was starting to be like, well, I haven't thought about this from age 65. And so actually one of my questions was about biomarkers of inflammation. And so we'll get there in a second, but I mean, I got to, you know, like we're going to talk about a different context here for a second. Um, <laughs> basically what I just took from that is restoring hormones through the option at this time is hormone replacement therapy helps prevent chronic disease because of essentially metabolic health and tissue degradation. That is the otherwise, maybe I'm saying that not quite perfectly, but that's the otherwise option when you don't have any hormones to help support your body. Krista, nothing is a guarantee in life, but the way Kristen and I feel about HRT is when the more you know about it, the less afraid you are of it. And quite frankly, like we wouldn't want to eat. We think it's riskier to age without hormone therapy than to age with it. If that puts it in context. No, it's great. It's great. I'm glad we talked about this. I didn't know we were going to talk about HRT preventing potentially medications because that's ultimately what people also want is they don't want to be on medication. They do want it, but by the time they have gotten the, you know, have established the need or have the need for the medication. I wouldn't say it's a hundred percent too late, but it's a heck of a lot harder to say, no, I don't want to do the statin. All right. So we have a woman who's like, 
65. No, I don't want to do the stat. No, I don't want to do the beta blocker. No, I don't want to do the metformin. I want to now go on HRT because I've just learned. Well, it's not impossible, but it's a lot harder. There's a lot. It's just more challenging as you grow older, basically due to potential plaques and arteries. And that can be a problem with HRT. So that's why Krista and I are so passionate about speaking to these women that are really plus 40. Really, Now's the time. Yeah. There's a lot of education that you do. Do you help women find, I guess maybe I should go back and say, for someone trying to understand hormone replacement therapy, there are multiple modes of it, right? Are you able Lots to of vehicles to of options? delivery? Vehicles of delivery. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> what are the vehicles of delivery for hormone replacement therapy? Well, there's a lot, but that's what we teach on. And I do think that that would be just a little bit too, we would be here for another hour if we were to talk that. Yeah. That's one and of those the things thing you is, can't there answer is an, short. Yeah. There is an artistry to the delivery of HRT and it is not a set it and forget it proposition. So that's why we try and teach women all the nuances because these are decisions that they need to make initially and that will be reevaluated as they kind of age and go through life. You know, what works for their body, what works for their lifestyle, what works for their pocketbook, you know, what sort of level of aggressive approach they want to take, et cetera. All of these things start to matter. And so it's just, it's so nuanced and so individual that like Maria said, it could be an entire podcast. (laughs) That makes sense. Because if you want to help people understand not just a little segment of it, because it's going to transition, then that's important. One thing that we can cover, though, before we kind of wrap up here is that, and on the same note, we just talked about this in different terms. So you talk a lot about in your education, making sure we measure the biomarkers, lipids, and inflammatory markers as we age. I guess you've kind of just talked about that a little bit, but you want people to do that as soon as possible, right? You would like them to start doing that in perimenopause and then they're to make sure that's not shifting in the negative direction. Is that correct? Or, or what would you say about this and what markers would you have someone be checking? Yeah. I mean, we are really big on making kind of your annual check be one of full metabolic health. And so you need to be looking not at a standard cholesterol panel, more at a fractionated cholesterol panel, which can be, there's different names for it, but the NMR lipoprotein profile is a good one to start with. You need to be looking at your insulin sensitivity. That's a heck of a lot more than just measuring your fasting glucose and your, you know, CMP. So we should be looking at inflammatory markers, whether that's HSCRP, homocysteine. You need to know your vitamin D level. If we've learned anything in the last 18 months, vitamin D is a huge regulator of immune system and inflammation as well. Women need to be asking for a comprehensive thyroid panel. They're not usually getting it. Doctors are testing one marker that's got about a 10-year lag time, so that's not helping them. I'm trying to think, Maria, what else that we look at? We look at iron panels. That becomes really, really important for women as perimenopause hits and they start to have the fluctuating periods. Some may go drastically anemic and some may start to see their ferritin start to go really, really high, which could, that's a stored form of iron. And it could, you know, signal some liver inflammation or, you know, other sort of stress response. So we take a really, really big picture look at health beyond just measuring sex hormones, which If you're a woman in your 40s, ask for those sex hormones to get measured annually, start to look for trends. But we like to go pretty deep with metabolic health markers. So gut health would be another huge piece of it. Yeah, that was really helpful. 
All right. So if someone's listening and they're starting to experience perimenopause symptoms, and that's why the title of this episode piqued their interest, and they're feeling like this kind of sucks, what parting words do you want to give this woman today of encouragement or support? I would say that, you know, these changes that she's going through are completely normal and to be expected. You know, the body is changing quite significantly. It is the like early beginning process of ovarian senescence or hormone loss. So there are going to be some changes. And while we did say that you can mitigate those changes with really good diet and lifestyle and sleep habits and things like that, you may not be able to mitigate 100% of them. And that's where you just, you know, will have to realize this is give yourself grace. These are some changes that I'm going through. They're not broken. There's like nothing wrong with them. It's normal. Then the question becomes, how do you support the body, right? What do you give yourself? Do you, you know, do you pull back on the exercise or maybe you don't have any exercise and you need to start doing that? Do you not stay up for the Netflix, you know, marathon? Do you clean up your bedtime routine? Do you change or leave a job that's absolutely draining the life out of you? Everyone we found, I mean, Kristen, we've had maybe two or three clients in our lifetime that didn't need any dietary tweaking. You know, yeah. you get an evaluation of your diet and your lifestyle. So yeah, get educated. You know, if you're starting to feel these things and they're starting to freak you out, just get really, really educated. There are good resources out there. There's practitioners like us, like yourself that can teach on these things. I think what women suffer the most from is a feeling of the loss of control at this stage of life. And there's nothing worse than feeling like you've lost agency in your life. You know, that is behind a lot of mental health issues and everything else that we've got going on in our country. We say, take it back. There's so many opportunities and so many levers that you can start pulling to take control over this situation, mitigate it, and, you know, really shift the narrative to kind of how your next chapter is going to be. Maria and I feel like we're living examples of women in our 50s. We've raised seven kids between the two of us and we've got great husbands. We're enjoying the best chapter of our lives right now. There's nothing you could pay me to make me go back to my 30s or 40s. So, you know, and that's not what you typically hear from women in their 50s. So. Yeah. It's like a feel good ending point. You know, it's like, thank you for the optimism after that dark thing that we just went through (laughs) a few minutes ago. Okay. On the note of getting educated, where can people find you online? So they can find us on Instagram at wise and well. And we've got a website, uh, wiseandwell.me. And in our Instagram links, you can find a link to a free community that we run, not on Facebook. It's on a mighty channel or mighty networks channel. And it's just where, you know, we can kind of take the sound bites of Instagram and go a little bit deeper. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on today. Both of you. Pleasure. Sharing and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help us succeed with our mission to help integrate the best of East and West and empower you to raise the bar on your health story. Just go to reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. That's reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. And you'll be taken directly to a page where you can insert your review and hit post.